Find your way to Acts chapter 20. Though we heard from Peter's letter, we want to consider one verse in our text in Acts 20. A little bit of a slowdown. We're usually moving in a little bigger chunks to the book of Acts as we've considered the advance of the kingdom. This morning, though, we consider one verse as Paul admonishes these elders that he's gathered together. We studied his first admonition to them last week in his exemplary life lived among them. And now a special word to those elders, which Lord willing will pick up in a couple of weeks in January. Uh, If you want to begin preparing for some study in the next couple of weeks in December here, we'll be studying Matthew chapter 1. And so uh, read up on that if you would, uh, especially the pronunciation of some of those names, all right? We'll see what we can learn from Matthew chapter 1 in the next few weeks. Pet sitting is something that has been somewhat lucrative for our family. Um, We've had some very generous neighbors who, when our girls have watched a cat and a few dogs, uh, have paid quite generously. Now, admittedly, caring for a couple of these pets was a little bit of a chore. Uh, For the last couple of years of caring for the neighbors' two dogs that were blind and deaf and partially crippled, um, these dogs would literally stumble around the house and walk into things And if they could get to the backyard with help, um, they'd walk right into the trees and into the fence. It was was sad, (laughs) I suppose, in some ways, humorous in others. Um, But it was a lot of work because not only could they not really, you know, do real well at finding the feeding bowl or the door to the outside, they really didn't control other bodily functions well, so there was a lot of cleanup work, um, but it paid well. Uh, Pet sitting, maybe you've had to do that. Um, Maybe you've had your pets cared for, right? You've given that key to some neighbor kid or somebody, and they've had to come and take care of your pets. Uh, It's a big responsibility. Um, It got interesting towards the end because these two neighbor dogs, they're going to die at any moment. And when the neighbors would go away for a whole week, you know, our kids are just hoping that they don't go over there and find one of these poor dogs, you know, having expired and then having to tell the neighbors, you know, on our watch, your dog has died. Uh, It's a responsibility to watch someone's beloved cat, dog, chinchilla, whatever it might be. When your pet's sitting, I think you know this. You don't become the owner, right? You're simply standing in the place of the owner to provide care, a little bit of protection perhaps, any help needed while the owner is away. And that makes perfect sense to us. We get that. You leave, your prized possession is there at home, and you commission someone else to watch over it, to take care of it, to make sure it's healthy and well. If that example even makes a little sense to you, then it works to illustrate our text and a much more important matter. Our text is just one verse in Acts chapter 20, 
But to set the stage, remember verse 17, Paul is traveling down the coast of what is modern-day Turkey, and he has summoned the elders from Ephesus a few miles inland to meet him because he's just having a meeting with them as he passes by. He shared his testimony of his living among them that they could learn from, and now he has a specific word to them in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This admonition will be followed up with some more specific instructions regarding this general admonition, but I want us to just look at this one admonition that Paul gives in this verse. Our theme today is this matter of oversight, of careful oversight. Remembering our pet sitting illustration, the elders now are not the the owners of the church, they're just being commissioned to be responsible for it in the bodily absence of the owner. There are under-shepherds filling the role of the master shepherd until he returns. I want us to study in one sentence our outline this morning. The outline shapes the sentence, and it's this. Careful oversight should be diligently exercised by qualified elders over God's church. Careful oversight should be diligently exercised by qualified elders over God's church. Let's break that down and see it in the text, starting with those first two words, careful oversight. That's the theme because those words are what kind of shine in this one simple verse. Pay careful attention. That's a a strong admonition to these church leaders. But it makes us think of oversight. They're giving attention to something. And it's done carefully. There's the word overseer itself, which which inherently means to what? To see over something. So a pet sitter, even as just a teenager, was an overseer. They were commissioned to oversee the house and the pets that are in it. That word oversight reminds us of this one admonition of this verse regarding careful oversight. And then we see towards the end of the verse that word to care, to care for the church. So we're talking about those in this position that we call leadership, but lest we, lest we just think of immediately some higher up kind of rank or authority, understand that this verse is first communicating this this caring oversight. If If you think back to the famous shepherd of Israel, David, when he stood before Saul explaining his kind of inner drive to do something about this blasphemous Philistine, he tells Saul, listen, I'm I'm kind of worked up about this. I know what it is to see someone encroaching on the flock. 
And he tells the story of how a bear came and he fought it off. And a lion came to pick off one of his sheep and he fought it off with his slingshot. Even, it says, to the point of killing that thing as it was attacking. He said, taking the sheep right out of its mouth. David understood the role of oversight. It wasn't just sit back and look over. It was to be actively seeing what's going on and and where the threat might be coming from. You think of our military and the way they're trained to to understand threats and uh, potential weaknesses where the enemy might attack. This is the role of oversight. It's not a laissez-faire, kind of sit back and just kind of be in charge. No, you're the one doing the work. Oversight. Careful oversight. So we're talking about those in leadership in the church. And if you're thinking, can I leave then? Because I'm not in leadership in the church. The answer is no, you can't. All right? And we're watching closely to make sure you stay. It's good for you to understand what your leaders are commissioned to do. And it's good for you to understand God's design for his church. We'll have a few other applications as we conclude. But indeed, we are talking about careful oversight, and this challenge comes to those who lead in God's church. Careful oversight, but now let's begin to think it through. Careful oversight should be diligently exercised. Diligently exercised because this comes to us in the form of a command. It's not a suggestion, it's an imperative. So these elders are summoned and Paul's not just kind of speaking some general advice. You know, I've been around a little bit. Let me share a few things. No, by inspiration, these words are coming through Paul to these men and they're recorded for the good of the church still today. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. And when we hear that, we notice the two directions of oversight. This isn't just, oh, you get to be in charge and tell everyone else what to do because you have such a keen judgmental kind of eye. No, actually it starts with a very introspective look. The first direction of the oversight is inward. It's oversight over self. In recently studying through the qualifications for eldership that are in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, you see much about self-control, much about a a soberness, a a maturity. And, And all of these words seem to like, put up a fence, a boundary to keep immaturity and and spontaneity from bursting out. There is a settled, controlled, mature approach. And I think what Paul is getting at here is how that is maintained by a constant oversight, not of just the flock, but first over self. That pithy, simple wisdom of Proverbs tells us that a man who doesn't govern his own spirit is like a city without walls, which in the old days would have been disastrous. So maybe we can at least think back as far as like Great Britain 
you know, England and Scotland and Ireland, and you're picturing those castles and their big walls. Well, they didn't just build a house. They needed a fortress. They needed a wall. Paul is saying a man needs to have self-control. He needs to have walls built up in order to be an effective and qualified leader. There is an inward evaluation, an inward oversight. That's why I wanted us to hear 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter calls on the elders to, to constantly beware of their motives. Why do you think you're in this position? Or as our text would say, why do you think the Holy Spirit has put you in this role? Govern yourselves. Paul would challenge his young friend Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. In what? In keeping close watch on yourself and on the teaching. For by doing so, you will both save yourself and your hearers. I think oftentimes in pastoral ministry, we overlook this responsibility that we should be calling our leaders to. A a perpetual guarding of self by all the boundaries of the word so that then they are qualified to be overseers of the flock. This this self-guarding, I think, isn't only for pastors, though specifically our context, clearly that's the focus. But we remember phrases similar to guard yourself in passages like Galatians chapter 6. You who are spiritual in the moment, help that one who is overtaken in a fault. And then we're warned to be careful to guard our own selves, lest we also be tempted. Anytime we're exercising spiritual care for your spouse, for your children, for friends as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to keep a watch on ourselves. So it makes perfect sense for Paul now addressing those whose primarily gifting is to be overseeing others and helping in spiritual needs that they would give attention to their own heart. It just reminds us that even in the doing of good, we will find a way. We will find a way to corrupt it. Pride will creep in. So be careful. Guard yourself this week in the doing of good. Check those motives. Not because they're always sinful, but because it's good to maintain those boundaries. Farmers will will ride, they used to do it on horseback, now they do it on four-wheelers and everything else. They'll ride their fences to make sure the fences are good. So to check the fence doesn't mean, oh, there's problems. It just means it's good and right to maintain, to keep thinking rightly about what God is doing in advancing his kingdom. That's the theme of Acts, by having strong elders in his church. Because if Jesus said, I will build my church and it will advance, and the book of Acts demonstrates that, 
then we should note that an easy way for the local church to be derailed is by having leaders who, it becomes evident, have not guarded themselves. And I say it becomes evident because you won't always see it at first, but it will become evident that they did not guard themselves. So you can pray, and you can speak you can speak truth. You can, you can approach the elders and say, hey, this is what I've seen in the word lately, praying for you guys. Because I know, I've, I've, I've been in the churches where there has been massive failure in, in multiple kinds of arenas. And I've talked much about it, and I've recounted it over the years often. But I'm sure the talking about it and the recounting it far offset any time I ever spent praying for my pastor. So I guess in a sense, I shouldn't have been surprised that sin would rear its ugly head, that guarding would seem simplistic. Surely the most spiritual among us don't need to guard themselves. You hear the fallacy. And so as a congregation, it is good for us to hear that the pastors among you need to guard themselves, that the potential elders among us, as we explore that, need to know that it's a responsibility. You're stepping into an oversight position of of someone else's flock. And it begins with an inward oversight that then becomes an outward oversight. That's the other direction that's obvious in the text. You're made overseers of this flock over other disciples, other believers, and you call them to careful attention in their own hearts. Proverbs, again, 27 says, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. It's a catchy piece of wisdom. Could apply to you in the business world. It could apply to your finances. Kind of the original context of knowing the the state and the health of your flocks and herds. That was your livelihood. But in this New Testament language, I think we can borrow the flocks and herds concept and say this is what oversight means. To make sure the the whole flock is healthy. It's not just the pastors are healthy. they've, They've watched their own hearts, and now they're exercising their gifts and all is well. No, all is well when the flock is being cared for. So give attention to yourself, but also to the flock. Hebrews is strong on the language of exhorting one another. And for a crowd such as this, many of you having been in church for a long time, Hebrews 2.1 might be helpful. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Funny how the people that have already heard and heard and heard and heard again and again are told to pay closer attention. It's usually like, oh, you guys that have been around a while, you've already heard this before. So the rest of you listen up. And Hebrews says kind of the opposite. Some of you have heard this so much that you might not really even give it much thought anymore. Pay closer attention 
to the good news that Jesus was born to save sinners, lest we drift away from that good news. Hebrews 3 would go on to tell us to exhort one another every day, lest any one of us be overtaken by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, we just weren't ready for that. We weren't watching. Careful oversight should be diligently exercised over self and over the flock, but our sentence continues. Careful oversight should be diligently exercised by qualified elders. Now, to explain qualified elders could be a whole series in itself, but we're trying to, we're trying to find what Paul is using in this simple admonition to the Ephesus elders to qualify their ministry. Because we could read in Timothy and Titus the long list of words and break them down and study those. And that'd be helpful because I think we'd see what Paul is saying here is just fleshed out in more words there. But I don't want us to miss the qualifications that unfold here. He's speaking to the elders. Verse 17 tells us that. Call for the elders of the church. And I want us to, before we get to those qualifications, just kind of refresh our minds a little bit about elders. The word itself was kind of borrowed from Judaism. You go back into the Old Testament and the language of the leaders of the people, if it wasn't Moses or Joshua, it was the elders. And it meant exactly what it means. <laughs> the older people, those men that had been around for a while and were the heads of households and entire tribes or clans, they'd seen some things and they'd grown in their wisdom. And so those men would gather together, at least 70 of them were told in Exodus, and would help Moses in the administration of this massive army of people. They were the older men which implied wisdom and character and testing. Well, that word elder kind of just continued on into God's people, the church, and rightly so. Um, we should still be concerned with character and maturity and wisdom, that kind of proving of these men. It's just that it didn't become strictly an age word. It became what age represented in that Old Testament people leader, a mature, under control kind of man who's seen some things and knows how to apply wisdom to get things done. Well, that term elder then is what is more often than not used to describe leaders in the church in the New Testament. There are other words uh, we'll see in a moment, but whether we use the word elder or any of those other terms, know where that's rooted in scripture. These are the church leaders that are commissioned with this careful oversight. Now, in thinking through elders, we should know that as Paul uses the word, and he has before, started back on his first and second missionary journeys, where he established these churches. And in Acts chapter 14, he came back and he visited those churches. And it says, 
He wanted to make sure they're, they're doing well, that they're being established, and he appointed elders in every church. He recognized that in every congregation he stopped in, there needed to be a group of men working toward wisdom and oversight and teaching in that body. The pattern of Scripture is multiple elders in every church. And so in Acts and in other places, we hear this language of elders in the church, and elders is plural and church is singular, which is just helping us think it's one at a time. It's elders in this church, and it's elders in that church, and it's elders in that church. Now, many of us grew up in and and still know of many churches that have a little bit more of a, of a single kind of pastor model. Uh, or they might have a number of pastors on the staff, but there's the senior pastor. He's kind of the guy in charge. I would just say that you, you don't find a pattern like that in the Bible as much as you would find this common language. There's this group. Now, there may be various giftings in that group. We have three elders, and we're actively now exploring Uh, how the Lord would lead us to add others to that number. But as you well know, I'm kind of tasked with the regular responsibility of teaching and preaching the word. It's not that I'm a better elder than others. This is simply the assignment of God's gifting and the responsibilities amongst elders. So multiple elders in each church. Now, do we look at other churches and they might have a senior pastor and others under him or only one pastor and say they're doing it wrong? I don't think we need to be so bold. I think we should rightly even say to them, it seems to be the pattern of scripture that there's multiple godly elders in a congregation. If they call them pastors and senior pastors, I I don't really care as long as their heart is all those gifts being used for the good of the body. When people ask me my job, I I generally say I'm a pastor. I might say I'm the teaching pastor or I'm one of the elders. I do the teaching. But I want them to know that if they were to come here, it's, it's not just one, the top of a pyramid, that God has gifted his body and there are others. And our church is at the age where that's really our next step of growth, exploring other gifts that God could use to lead this congregation. Multiple elders in every church. And as Paul talks about elders, we should be reminded that at times he uses other words. Elders, probably most common. The next most common would be the word bishop, though Most of our Bibles don't use that word. Really goes back to just the the gross kind of stereotype, even back to the Reformation. Rome had, had so adopted the term bishop for hierarchy that we just, as the more reformed Protestant side of the church, we just didn't want to try to bridge that gap and use that biblical word for the role of a pastor in a church. Um, so bishop isn't a word that probably most of you grew up using. Um, down south, you heard it a little bit more in far more Pentecostal circles, um, often more in a black congregation in that form of Pentecostalism. 
Um, but for most of us, bishop is not a word that we usually put up there as an option. We have elders or pastors. Pastor's that third word used in the Bible to describe this same leadership in the church. They're called elders, they're called overseers or bishops, and they're called pastors or shepherds. The word pastor is just from other languages, it's the word shepherd. So we have pastor, elder, bishop. Three words used in the Bible, generally, interchangeably, even in our text, Verse 17, call the elders, but when he speaks to them, he says, you've been made bishops or overseers to care for, the word is pastor or shepherd, to shepherd the flock. So which are they? Are they elders? Are they overseers? Or are they shepherds? Well, they're all three. If you were listening when I read 1 Peter, you would have heard all three terms there as well. They do have their nuance in their definition, but they all kind of lump together into the role of overseeing, leading, caring for God's church. So you can say we have pastors at our church. You can say we have elders at our church. Technically, you can say we have bishops at our church. It just might sound a little confusing to some people. Now, how does Paul qualify these men, and we'll generally call them elders? First, qualified to Paul means they're following the Spirit. He reminds them, yes, give attention to yourselves. And he says, you have been put in your place by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the Spirit's hands, we could say, The Spirit's guiding are behind church leadership. That's how it's supposed to be. Well, can't we also say the Spirit's hands or the Spirit's leading are behind the life of every Christian? Of course. We're to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians tells us. Or Galatians, walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. So we're just kind of looking at it from one direction. The Holy Spirit is behind church leadership. He put them there. From the other direction, we're saying men who are put there then should be following the lead of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants these men to hear there's something more than just you. You're not in this position because of who you are. You're in this position because God, by the Holy Spirit, is doing good to his church with your gift. Follow the Spirit's leading. The Spirit leads to established church leaders. Originally, that was through the apostles. They were starting the churches and and raising up the leaders. But we don't have the apostles anymore. The church was built on their foundation and other gifts, such as the pastor teacher, are given now to to lead the church in raising up those other gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us of this, that it's the spirit who is God's agent for ministry giving, gift giving. And all of us, regardless of our gift, then, should be resting in, leaning on, being filled by, walking in the Spirit 
in the exercise of our gift for the good of the body. Some of those gifts are a little more predominant. They, they're part of the, the worship service or the big chunk of the worship service, the preaching ministry. Others of those gifts are seen all throughout Sunday morning's work and then all throughout the week. And it, and it unfolds in, in the different groups that gather, in the different Bible studies. It, it, it unfolds in private with you just in your home and simple words sent in modern text messaging. But use your gift in the following of the Holy Spirit. You've heard some prayer requests this morning. Ask the Lord how your gift might be used for the good of the church in that season of need. Paul says qualified means following the Spirit. So essential to leadership then, we could say, is fellowship. I don't know if that's a word, but it's parallel, right? If leadership is what they're supposed to be doing in the church, just note it begins with fellowship. You follow the Spirit, and that's what makes you a good leader in God's church. Whether you were ever serve as an elder or a pastor, a deacon or a group leader, your leadership in the home, in any friendship, leadership into the word, begins with your own fellowship. Qualified means following the Spirit, but in our text, I think qualified also means imitating the work of Christ. You say, how do we see that in Paul's words here? To give attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I would say we see the imitation of Christ as the qualification for church leaders in the description of their work. Paul uses the word overseers, and then he says their work is to shepherd or care for the flock. Both of these words, overseer and shepherd, are used to describe church leaders, but one time those words are used to describe Christ himself. Peter uses it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and following. He himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter rehearses the gospel very specifically. Jesus, the Son of God, in our place, bears our sin. He's paraphrasing almost Isaiah chapter 53. So our sin in his body on the cross. Why? So that we would die with him to sin, but we would raise with him to everlasting life, to righteousness. And his conclusion is, by his wounds, which obviously literary, 
in literature are used to represent his death on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. It's an understatement, right? First, wounds representing his entire work and death, and healed, representing new life in Christ. By his wounds, you have been healed. And he links this gospel, which is at the heart of the church, of the kingdom's advance, the good news. He links that to this ministry called shepherding and oversight. Because that gospel was accomplished by the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So when Paul uses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the language to those elders at Ephesus, you are overseers who shepherd the flock. He's saying you need to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and constantly be feeding the sheep that simple message that Jesus is God's hope for you to be righteous. Jesus is God's plan for your forgiveness of sin. Jesus is your opportunity to spend eternal heaven in the presence of his joy, Psalm 16. Shepherding and overseeing is not who gets the say-so in the church. They are the gospel champions in the church. They are the ones who recognize shepherding and oversight is a gospel task. It's constantly proclaiming, by his stripes we're healed. We gather today because Jesus died on a cross. And it says there that we have come in faith to believe it was for my sin. You see, there are others in our neighborhoods and all around our city who are not gathering to worship a risen Christ. They're not seeing the need for their sin to be atoned for. They're not seeing Jesus as a shepherd and overseer of their souls. They haven't believed the gospel. So we cannot separate shepherding and oversight from the gospel. But more and more, as as the nature of corporate church in America is especially, we think a corporation, an institution, we have a constitution, we we have church votes, uh, and so it feels more like a, a political process. And at times, if we're not careful, it can become us against them, congregation against those elders. What are they trying to do? What are what are they planning? But, but we need to fight against that, that mindset because that's not what comes out of Scripture. Scripture keeps it really simple. Just like the Christmas story, there were shepherds on the hills of Bethlehem keeping watch on their flocks by night. That was happening for hundreds of years. That same narrative could be told over and over. And so it should be in the church that we're just going through life this pilgrim journey as sheep being shepherded by these under shepherds that God in his goodness by his Holy Spirit has given to kind of just keep us all going that same direction together. It's not supposed to be about all the the votes and who said what and who's in charge and who's more important. That's not the story of the Bible. It's shepherding and oversight. 
These are the qualifications that Paul highlights in this text, not because the others are unimportant, but because here it's just this word in passing to elders, and he just reminds them, follow the Spirit. He's the one that got you to this place. Imitate Christ. Remember, you're, you're a shepherd and overseer. You know who the role model is. But our sentence ends with this. Careful oversight should be diligently exercised by qualified elders over God's church. God's church. The church belongs to God, that means. It's his. It's his possession. And he uses that word from Old Testament carried over into Peter's language. His chosen possession. Again, the Proverbs would mention the apple of his eye. The church. And so that we would feel the the weight of how that happened, he reminds us that we were purchased with his own blood. An interesting expression, since the antecedent is God. God's church purchased with God's blood, which has led the church for thousands of years to think, wait a minute, this, this is unfolding for us Trinitarian doctrine. God's church, and yet he appoints its leaders by his Holy Spirit, And this church was purchased by God's blood, but we know from the rest of Scripture that that was God the Son, Jesus Christ. So there's there's some big theology there in helping us understand one God in three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's, it's hard to miss at the same time when you hear that interesting expression, purchased with God's blood, his own blood. It's good news for us. The church belongs to God. Doesn't belong to the pastors or elders. Doesn't belong corporately to the church officers by some filing with the Secretary of State, which we do every other year. Doesn't belong to trustees. Doesn't belong to the congregation. We think that's the the other option, right? Well, if those leaders, if it's not the elders' church, then it's then it's ours. Right? Rise up, congregation. No, we do not hear the people sing, uh, as the Broadway musical says. It's God's church, and we're all sheep. The interesting dynamic of wrestling with church leadership is that they too are sheep in the flock. And so let us recognize it's God's church, it belongs to Him. But He sent His Son. And Christmas marks the inauguration of that sending moment. He sent his son Jesus to seek and to save his people. Teens, you remember that from last night. We split them up and let them pursue all the answers, or at least a lot of them, to the question, why did Jesus come to earth? And scripture has dozens of ways to answer that question. But one of them was to seek and to save the lost. I hope Christmas is a joy to you. Because one day, by grace, you felt that shepherd's crook catching you under your arms and lifting you like a sheep out of the briars and rocks of life. And he made you his own. He brought you into the fold. He came to seek and to save 
those who were lost. Jesus would say in his ministry, I will build my church. So we see clearly, this is God's church. But what does it mean for the church to belong to God? Well, first, Paul says, we're purchased with his blood. Not an uncommon theme in scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians in all of their sinful past, was saying, you have been bought, you've been redeemed, and the picture was bought from that slave market of sin. You've been bought back. To use the language of Hosea, you who were once not my people are now my people. You had wandered away and had been judged under that sentence of no mercy, but now you have encountered mercy. You're bought with a price, redeemed, purchased. 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, but not with perishable things such as silver and gold, for to use the word redeemed would call up those ideas in their minds. Redemption, buying a slave off the marketplace, or a slave that you really loved, you could purchase them and set them free if you so chose. But that's not the kind of buyout we're talking about. You weren't bought with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, that was added to make sure all that Old Testament understanding of animal sacrifice, from the Passover blood on the door all the way through the Mosaic law, that that shedding of blood was an important foundation for understanding our redemption, the precious blood of Christ. That theme will always be in our lips because one of the songs of Revelation is worthy, are you, O Lord, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people to God from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So for all of heaven, we will have an acute theological awareness and enormous thanksgiving and joy for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. To belong to God means we are purchased by his blood. But I want to take one other thought that doesn't flow directly from this verse, but it's implied. If we are purchased by his blood, then we are secured by his love. We will always belong to God. To hear the language, you are God's church, purchased by his blood, means there is nothing that can separate you from that standing in Christ, belonging to God. And the scriptures labor with us in our frailty to make sure that we will be assured of our security in Christ. Jesus, using this very language of shepherding and sheep, speaks of his father giving him sheep, and he is to seek and save them all. 
And he says, as he brings those sheep into the fold, no one is able to take them out of my hand. And then he adds, no one is able to take them out of my father's hand. You're secure. Read Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then another question is asked. In light of that same premise, if he did not spare his son, but gave him up for us, the next question Paul asks is, what can separate us from the love of God? And his answer in a few verses is essentially nothing, nothing. Can heights or depths or, or spiritual powers, sickness, tribulation, he, he tries to list things, but it's a scattered list, a broad scattering, and it's just making the point, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. So when you hear the words, even though they're to the elders, hey, you have careful oversight over this church that was purchased with the blood of Christ. Remember this, that's that's all of us who have put our faith in Jesus. And having done so, you are secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And that's good news that sometimes week by week in the throes of hardship and at times the throes of sinful failures that the devil uses to add to our discouragement, we start thinking, maybe I have done something to separate myself. Oh, you you have vastly overestimated your abilities. (laughs) Think far less of your ability and far more of God's steadfast love. For he loves to boast on his love that never ends. And this is the fruit of being purchased by his blood. What can you, the congregation, do with this text? Let me give you just a couple of thoughts. One, receive the care and oversight from spiritual leaders. If you're willing to say in those moments of honesty, yeah, I'm not perfect. I got a lot I need to work on then don't be afraid to hear that from someone else. Receive the admonition from spiritual leaders. Paul had mentioned earlier in this passage that he didn't shrink back from sharing anything that was profitable for the health of the church. Be ready to be one of those church members that gladly profits from admonitions rooted in the word. Number two, pray as we've begun exploring candidates for additional eldership. We've begun meetings with several couples regarding qualifications, and we'll be embarking on some theological training and examination in the coming months. Lord willing, we'll present some men to the congregation this spring for your consideration, for your affirmation, and Lord willing, that will be the first of more to come. It's a new venture for us, a new exercise in rightly passing on to other faithful men who will teach others. And it's high time. God's richly blessed our church. And so pray as we continue to explore that. Some of your names are on a list that's being prayed for now for future exploration. 
And we want God's spirit, as he did in this text, to continue to put people in those places where their gifts will be used for the common good of the church. Receive the care of spiritual leaders. Pray for those leaders, and specifically in our church, as we seek for more of them. And number three, look to Jesus as the chief shepherd and overseer. Oh, listen, we as elders long for you to be blessed by elder ministry at Grace Bible Church. But I got to break it to you. We will not be perfect in our care. You may feel at times some kind of neglect or oversight. That may be our failure. That, that may be yours. But the fact of the matter is, no pastor or elder in any congregation is supposed to be the great answer, the great hope, as long as he's by my bedside, as long as he visits, as long as I talk to him on Sunday, as long as he knows my prayer request, that's not how it works. My kids didn't own the pets next door and they don't own the cat across the street or the dog around the corner or the people across town. They belong to someone else. Someone who actually was probably more in tune with the needs and more willing and able to care for those pets. And so it is in God's church. Oh, the under-shepherds should care and oversee and protect and feed and lead and guide all as an example of our good shepherd. So look to Jesus. Hopefully you'll, you'll look through your elders and see Jesus, but you got to look to Jesus. You have to see him. He won't fail you. He won't disappoint you. He won't forget your need or, or, or overlook it or be unaware of it. He never fails you. So take heart. This is not your great hope, nor is Dennis or Clark or any others we would add. Or if any, everyone in this church was an elder, only focusing on you, it would still be insufficient because you need Jesus. So read Psalm 23 this week. And remember, it's Jesus who cares for his church. And he simply leaves his under shepherds as those representatives to hopefully manifest what his care looks like in some small way. Give thanks that you are in good hands. The hands of the Good Shepherd. Heavenly Father, would you encourage our hearts as we simply receive your good plan for the local church in this congregation? May we strive to be everything that the church should be in its leading, in its following, in its serving, in its loving, and certainly in its looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for paying the price of our redemption that we might live in righteousness. Lord, would you guide us into your word 
for it is the source of all authority that church leaders could have, and it is the hope for all of us to live as we should. We claim these precious promises as our own. Would you guide our church? Would you raise up gifts among us? Gifts of leadership and eldership, but gifts of hospitality and gifts of serving, gifts of of exhorting, gifts of speaking truth. Would you awaken us all to the common good that each one contributes for the health of this congregation and for the glory of its head, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.